Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you're considering a divorce, it's important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. We also talk with divorce clients about what went right and what went wrong in their divorce. On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, Camille Milner talks with Sarah Armstrong, author of The Mom's Guide to a Good Divorce, what to think through when children are involved. One of the things that, as you know, my husband um, is a marketing professional. For the last 25 years, he has listened to me talk at dinner every night about the frustration of trying to get the word out about the collaborative divorce process and why the brand of divorce is, as you're describing to people, they don't know any better. When they get a divorce, they think it has to be this way, which is antagonistic and and animosity. I have kids that are in their 20s, 30s and 40s now that come in to me and say, we are getting a divorce, but we do not want our parents divorce. And I think I think that is a significant shift. But the other thing that my husband says after listening to all that is up until maybe the 70s, To get a divorce in this nation and in most of the states in this nation, uh, you had to allege fault because there was such a societal uh, stigma about it. And and so what he says, when we get when we get frustrated and feel like we're not making any headway on showing society and our children, there is a different way, a much healthier way. We have to be mindful that that brand is so entrenched in our society from all those years that it will take us time to make this movement of healthier divorces, good divorces become more normal. Absolutely. And here, the, it's so true. I will tell you that when I have over the years with my book shared the, the concept of a good divorce, I, or even just my whole story, I've had people say, you know, I know one other person, one other couple that's done that. And I, I say back, wow, that's great. You know, one other couple. But wouldn't it be great if most couples that went through this could say they had a good divorce? Why is it just the one? You're like, right. It just, it, it's the one off. And you know, I've actually recently had someone say that I make divorce look too good. And I go, oh, oh gosh, I said, that's really, I'm not sure what to say, <laughs> not sure what to say with that, to do with that. But I think the point is like, I've embraced life post-divorce. I'm yes. very happy. Grace is happy. I haven't let it be that negative cloud. You know, You're not I, minimizing the pain that you go through and the work that you go through to get on the other side for all of you. No, absolutely. There's so much work. There's so much to work through, but I don't think that that, Again, I go back to it's an action. It happened. What do you want the rest of your life to look like? And And one of the things as a divorce professional that I see that you've done such a beautiful job transforming is I see people get stuck in that divorce identity, scarlet letter, whatever you want to call it. And they some of them stay there the rest of their lives. And that is such a sad thing to see. And you are modeling. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've seen people that, that get stuck there. And I just, and you know, the irony for me is I've always said, I don't want to be defined by my divorce. Now, then I wrote, <laughs> then I read, wrote a book on the topic, but I think it was really in the spirit of, of showing a different way of showing yes. how to think about it and to help others. So. Absolutely. And to the book, let's yeah. talk some specifics about your great book. The mm-hmm. format of the book, you call it a guide. Yes. 
And yeah. it's in bite-sized pieces, as you said. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, um, this seems to be very intentional. You didn't necessarily write it for people that would sit down and read it like a novel or a typical self-help book. And I love the format that you gave it. Can you explain the intentional intentionality that you had when, when you were doing it in that format? Absolutely. So when I, first of all, going back to when I got divorced, I was given a number of books and they were thick and dense and I opened them, I closed them and I never read them. Overwhelming. (laughs) Overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. Could didn't even know where to start. And I think that's an important thing is the mindset of someone going through divorce. There's so many things coming at you, so many moments that you're trying to think through and decisions and all these things. So when I decided to write this book, I did want to write it very intentionally with bite-sized pieces of of advice and guidance. And it's so it's basically a topic per page and it might be a paragraph. It might be a page. It might go into two pages. Um, And it really isn't, isn't meant, as you said, isn't meant to be read cover to cover. It's, it's set up in three phases, preparing for the change during the change and post the change. And um, you know, the interesting thing is I had a moment, Camille, where I was, um, right after I wrote the book, I was in the, the produce section, actually, at the grocery store. And I had this woman walk up to me and she said, are you Sarah Armstrong, the author? And I stopped and I, it was one of those moments. I'm like, oh, gosh, I actually <laughs> I am. And uh, she said, well, I was at your um, your book signing at Barnes & Noble and I'm going through divorce. And I'm always I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear going through divorce. She said, well, I want you to know that I carry your book with me everywhere and it keeps me calm. And she said, thank you for writing it. And I said to her, thank you for sharing that with me. Yes. I, you know, she walked away, Camille, and I looked and thought, you know, that's why I've written this book, to help the woman that I've never met before, you know, Mm -hmm. and to keep her calm during this process. And so that's even why, like, the white space that I use, you know, there's, um, you know, as I outlined the book and laid the book out, it was meant to be, you know, white space and, you know, not dense and even a laugh that the editor who was working with me wanted me to put more topics on a page. I'm like, no, no, no. And they said, you missed the point. I said, they said to me, but you're wasting paper. I said, you know, I'll be be environmentally conscious in some other aspect of my life, but I need just one topic on a page. So it's, um, it's very intentional and um, it is available by the way, not just in paperback, but on an ebook, iBook for those that might not Night might not want this on their bedside. And also I went in the studio over the pandemic and did an audible version. Oh, so wonderful. if you go out on a walk and just listen to a couple of pieces of thoughts and guidance and then, you know, press pause and come back to it later, it's there for you that way as well. Well, it's one of the most user-friendly guides I've ever seen. And one of the things that I love is how you did the table of contents. You don't you don't group them, you let them stand alone. And just like the white space, you did it in a way that is so user-friendly. Thank you. They can go to that topic and when it's like an encyclopedia in a way, but a small one, not yes. one that's overwhelming. Yes. And every topic imaginable is in that, including that people can only process one phase at a time. And so you have those divided into getting ready. And one of the things that I see a lot is people never really understand their own finances until they're up against the wall on this. And so one of the things that you said that I think is so important, and if you'll explain it a little bit, is getting ready, getting ready to go into this phase of your life. 
Yeah, no, it's a great point, Camille. And I think for a lot of women, and this is, I'll say this, and it's a bit of a generalization, but I myself included, you know, um, from the financial standpoint, we had divvied up the household, uh, you know, responsibilities. And my, my ex-husband handled all the finances mm-hmm. and lots of other things. Most and, people, I think, divide them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, divide it up. And so I was not as conversant in things that I need to be conversant in relative to our finances, um, relative to, I mean, even back in the day, even using online banking. I mean, just mm-hmm. the basics. And I will say even, you know, my credit, because I was a second, not purposefully, but I was always the secondary signer in a lot of things. And so when it went to wanting to establish myself and actually have a mortgage on my own, that was one of the moments where my mortgage broker was like, you don't actually have the credit you would have at this stage in your life. And I'm looking going, what? And it was just, you know, it's these moments that you have points of education of what you need to know and be conversant on. So the grandmother I told you about, she had a famous quote, the credit follows the man. She had established it all, but the credit followed the man. And that apparently is still the case in your experience to some extent. To some extent, unless you know early on to just, and so I've, uh, you know, there's, there's lessons that I now will pass on to Grace and to others of questions you need to ask yourself um, in that. But I do think getting prepared and, and thinking, and that's why, as you mentioned, the book is outlined with all these decisions and things you need to think about. And some of them you have to think about up front, you know, and, and really get prepared and others you don't have to think about right away. And so it's, it's meant to kind of allow you to, to think through both the, the financial and the legal considerations up front. So you can get the right team in place and for whatever that looks like for you. And then you can kind of take it step by step. There's a quote you have that I, I want to read aloud if that's all right for our listeners, because I think it is just so important. You say you need to do all you can to stop, collect yourself, be smart, and approach the process in a very conscious way, trying to take as much emotion out of the process as possible in order to achieve the outcome you desire. And one of the things that I think divorce lawyers, at least the reason I'm in this is because some of the older divorce lawyers told people to leave their emotions out of the building. This is a business decision. And what we understand is it's impossible to completely cut them out. But if you can break it into pieces and do the boxes that you're talking about and be prepared so that you can stay in the front part of your mind, your outcome will be different. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, I think the the mindset is essential as you're going through this process and the um, there are moments when you might not be in the right mindset to make the decision that you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so you literally need to ask yourself, is, am I going to make the best decision possible given what's going in my, on in my head right now? And if, it, if the answer is no, I don't think so, then pause and mm-hmm. because compartmentalization comment from earlier, pause and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that in a little while. And just let the emotion, and again, the emotions probably need to come through and, and, but then come back to that decision when you're a bit more clear headed and say, okay, what is the best decision for either myself or my children, whatever the decision is relating to, and try to land on that with your emotions in check. Because I think a lot of the decisions we make um, during a divorce process, sometimes because the emotions are running so high over the course of time, can lead to decisions that you may not have made if you've given yourself that moment to pause and to think about it. 
We'll talk a little bit more specifically about that. But one of the things that I notice in the collaborative divorce process is when someone needs a break, whether it's for five minutes or till the other uh, another meeting, we want people to make those sound decisions that you were talking about. And that process, in contrast to litigation, enables you to have that space to make those decisions and make them in a healthy way. And I believe you did do your divorce within the collaborative process. Yes, we did. I'm going to have a lot more questions about that in a few minutes. But let me let me ask you a couple of other things before we get to that. You have a section about telling your children. I wonder if you could address that for our listeners, because that is one of the most children their entire lives. They will never forget the moment they learned that this has happened to their family. And you have great advice about that. So I think one of the things with telling your children, first of all, it's very age dependent in terms of the approach that you can take. And also, um, you really need to think about the environment you're doing it in. Where is it in relation to other maybe moments in their life, like avoiding telling them over the holidays or telling them, you know, before they're heading into their first day back to school, you know, moments that then are always going to be associated with mom and dad told us we were getting divorced and it's that day or that moment in their lives. So one is the timing of it um, and then the environment. And also, I think, you know, deciding what you share and don't share as to the why, you know, I think kids can only process so much and, you know, you need to decide what's the, what's the right amount of detail to go into as you're sharing this information. Um, we had gotten some counsel before we sh- we had a child specialist um, as part of our collaborative divorce process. He was an amazing fellow, and we sat down with him before, and he gave us some counsel of, of of how to think about talking to Grace about this. But when we did tell Grace, it was interesting because she's age seven. We told her the news; it obviously, you know, um, sunk in. But at the end, she processed, and then she was so. Can I go upstairs and play now? <sighs> And we said, of course you can. So it was, you know, we knew she was going to process over the course of time. Yes. It wasn't going to be an immediate moment. Um, but I think these are the things that you have to think about is where your children are in their age and in those moments and what's going to be the right environment to do it. And I think, unfortunately, parents expect too much of themselves. They need, they expect to know how to do this. None of us knows how to do that. And that's what child therapists and child specialists are for, to help us, to give us a roadmap on how to deliver this information and have the messaging in a way that the children can process it in their own time. Absolutely. And it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's an over-the-course-of-time processing situation. It is not processed within those moments. I mean, it can be, there's an immediate reaction, but then it's, there's a lot of processing going on. And there was one sad anecdote you had that I wanted to ask you about where you all were at a a park or someplace and Grace talked about a real family that had to be, that had to be a lump in your throat. I know it was hard. Yeah. That was our, it was spring break. Um, and she was nine years old and we were sitting at dinner, um, across from a family that had parents and, um, two children, a boy and a girl. And she looked at me and she said, that's a real family. And I go, oh, Grace, I go, we're a real family. She goes, no, we're not, mommy. We don't have a daddy here and I don't have a brother here. Now I had to laugh because I'm thinking, well, you probably weren't going to have a brother. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I tried to tell her why we were a real family. What's interesting is after that trip, I went back to the child specialist that we were working with and I wrote him a note and told him what had happened and what I had said. And he said to me, Sarah, you shouldn't have told her 
she was wrong because that was her perspective at the time. She said she will learn over the course of time that, that families come in lots of different shapes and sizes and forms. But right now, that's her mental model of a family. And so I said, you know what, that's a really fair point. And I think it's interesting how um, I wanted to correct it, right? I wanted to, to make that picture right. And I realized that, you know, there are those moments where it did hit me really hard. I just had a lump in my throat for sure. But I, his perspective helped me to think, you know what, you're right. She has to come to realize that we can still be a family even in a different form. And I think those team members that give us the insight and information and support can make all the difference. Um, Camille, I have to say, I mean, one of the moments that that child specialist helped us through, which is probably one of my toughest realizations during our divorce, was our first meeting before we even told Grace. Um, I mentioned to you that meeting. Well, part of that discussion, he looked at me and he said, Sarah, do you travel? And I said, yes, I travel internationally for my job. And he looked at my ex-husband and he said, do you travel? And he said, yes, I travel domestically. And he said, well, Grace is about to become a professional traveler. She's going to pack a bag every week for the next 11 years until she goes off to college. And I burst into tears. <laughs> and I said, that's not what I want for her. <laughs> and so we walked out of that session and I looked at my ex-husband. I said, I want us to figure out, I don't know what it looks like yet, but I want to figure out how we minimize, <clears throat> excuse me, minimize the fact that Grace feels like she's packing a bag each week. And you know? I love your section title that is never pack a bag. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we did, and I do realize there's some socioeconomic considerations with this, but we tried to have the basics at both homes. So mm-hmm. Socks, you know, jeans, shorts, t-shirts, et cetera. And only the special things that you'd only have one of, like Grace played golf. She only got one set of golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, the sock, like I, we, and then we had, I, I always joked, I didn't know how it happened, but all the socks would end up at one house. No, <laughs> I don't know how, but we would have rebalancing days. And I would text my ex-husband and I'd say, hey, we need to rebalance. I don't have any socks over here. So what would happen? And, but by the way, this wasn't for Grace to do. It wasn't her fault that there were too many socks at one house for the other. So I, we would do it. We would go up and figure out again, she was at an age where this was okay. She'd let us go and, you know, rummage through her dresser to figure out what was there. And then we would carry that bag or whatever it is to the other person Uh at the end at the transition points and say, here's the stuff. And because again, it wasn't great. It didn't, why does Grace have to manage her wardrobe across two houses? That wasn't her job. And even with the bag, like I, I look back and think about her not having to pack a bag when she goes back and forth. Kids didn't have to pack a bag. That means when they go to school, they have their backpack and they have an extra bag. Mm-hmm. And that bag into class. And it's like, here's my, here's my extra bag, you know, that I'm carrying because my parents are divorced. Yeah. And so any, all of those things are those micro moments, but any of them that we can either minimize or reduce or make as infrequent as possible. I think help our children as they're trying to transition into the way of life that they're going to outlive. One of the things that I have seen, um, even in collaborative cases sometimes is, and it's being very human, but sometimes parents are in their pain so much, they lose their ability to put themselves in their children's shoes. And you have brought that to the fore in a way that it really helps us think about you know, our pain's one thing, but we're adults. How is this affecting how our children feel? Let's be chill. Let's let's remember what it's like to be children. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important. 
one of the things that I think helps and that you talk about in your book is the co-parenting and shared family calendar. Can you talk a little bit about how that was helpful to you all to navigate through Grace's life as a child? Yes, we had, um, you know, a, cal- a Google calendar that, you know, had all of Grace's comings and goings on it and her whether it was soccer games or golf or whatever school activities were happening. And we could all see it that Grace could too, as well as our nanny. And it was just a joint view that, and so, you know, it showed where she was each night. So every, you know, so she didn't, and we tried to stay very consistent in our schedule, but because of our travel, sometimes one of us is out of town, she sees mom's in this place. And so I'm going to dad's or whatever the case is. So it really helped us to stay on the same page. And we were very, um, consistent on making sure the calendar was up to date um, so that we could all have that in view. And even though I know kids lot needs lots of scheduling or excuse me, uh, routine, mm-hmm. um, it's also important to teach them resilience. And I think by doing that with her, you taught her how to pivot as a person. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot that I think you learned. And I think the ability to adapt, to pivot, um, to be flexible, you know, or, you know, you have those moments um, where you have to go, oh, okay, this isn't quite, you know, as, as planned. And um, going back actually to the, to the topic we were talking about in terms of having things at both homes, you know, there would be moments where Grace would come down and say, mom, it's dress up day at school and my dress up shoes are at dad's house. Now, again, I would have to take a deep breath because again, that's not Grace's fault, right? That they're at dad's house. And I said, well, let's go get them. <laughs> so now we might be late for school because we need to go drive to dad's house. But you said, again, that's what you have to do. Let's let's go do it. And she could have left them at her grandparents' house and it would have been the same thing. Absolutely. There just seems to be a little bit different dynamic when it's with the other parent if there's a divorce. And we need to normalize that, I think. Absolutely. Join us next time for the conclusion of this conversation between Camille Milner and Sarah Armstrong. And remember, collaborative divorce is a better way to untie.